Hi, and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. I'm Mike Pointer. In this, the first episode of 2024, we're going to be covering the first event in the calendars of people interested in population genetics, which is, of course, POP Group. So later, you're going to hear from Susan Johnston, who gave the opening plenary talk, and then from Diana Lobo, winner of the prestigious Student Talk Prize. But first, here's lead organiser Mike Ritchie on hosting the meeting in St Andrews this year. I'm Mike Ritchie from the University of St Andrews. I did my PhD with Godfrey Hewitt a long, long time ago. I've always been interested in speciation and hybridisation, so I tend to work on origin of species stuff. Um, started off working in behaviour, but moved over to genomics. So what's your history with Pop Group? Well, so Pop Group was the sort of home conference I went to. Everyone that went to Godfrey Hewitt's lab in the 1980s was always taken to Pop Group en masse every year. It was like our conference. Um, so I think the first one I went to was in 1985 in Manchester. And I've missed a few, but probably fewer than a handful since then. So I know it very, very well. But one of the fun things about Pop Group is it's just a bunch of people that like getting together at that time of year and talking about evolutionary genetics. I've done so for a long time. And you were hosting this time. Did you fancy a go? Was it just your turn or...? <laughs> well, there's a, bit, there's a bit of a saga there, actually. I, having been going to it for decades, I always wanted to host one. But the University of St Andrews is very small and has this tradition of not making students clear the rooms at Christmas. So I, I felt we just didn't have space for accommodation. Um, you know, for a number of years, certain influential people in the pop group, like Brian Charles, kept looking at me at the business meeting and saying, isn't it time we had one at St Andrews, right? But I always had to make this excuse that we just didn't have accommodation. However, recently they opened up a big new cheap hotel for one of the golf tournaments, I think it was the British Open. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, hmm, that might make pop group accessible. So I finally put my hand up. I was not expecting it to be the biggest pop group. I was expecting about 200 folk. And in the end, we had 320. So after all those years, it was great to host it. Great to have everyone at St Andrews. I was quite keen to put on a good one. But, um, well, other people can tell me. It seemed to go well. It seemed to go well. Folks seemed to enjoy it. And I enjoyed myself. So did I. It was a great one. Uh, one of my highlights was actually the bit in your welcome talk about some of the paleobiology highlights of the area. Would you say something about that? Yeah, so um, I wanted to find a nice picture of St Andrews to use on the website. And uh, one of my favourites is one I took from on the shore looking back to the old bit of town. And in, in the front of the picture is um, a fossilised giant millipede mating trail um, where two giant millipedes crawled along some sedimentary rock, came together, walked together for a little bit, split and moved apart. So it, it's been written up in a journal as an example of fossilised copulatory behaviour between 350 million year old giant millipedes. So I thought that would probably appeal to the popular audience. 
What I didn't say was if you turn around 180 degrees on the rock behind that is a giant sea scorpion trackway that was also written up and published in Nature. So, yeah, there's some pretty cool fossils around this part of the world. Super cool. I didn't manage to get to see them this time, but top of my list for the next visit. So, of course, along with the stress, one of the great benefits of organising is that you get to choose the invited speakers. So how did you go about that and who did you choose? Yeah, so partly it was personal. Um, the opening plenary, Susan Johnson from Edinburgh, um, was an ex-undergraduate here, so I thought she might really enjoy coming back, giving a plenary. She took a bit of persuading to give the opening plenary, but I think it worked all right. So that was a personal thing. Um, I also chose Mark Patrick to close. I, I've always enjoyed listening to Mark, and he's researchers been very influential to what I do. Um, his mainly theoretical research has influenced a lot of the empirical work I've done. I, and he's a great guy, and I knew he would give a great closing plenary, so I chose those two. Um, we discussed, I, of course, I had a group of people helping me put this conference on and, and we discussed and took advice and looked for people who thought about areas. I wanted to have a plant speciation person and after chatting to folk, we invited Kirsten Bombleys to do that. And I wanted to get some maybe ancient DNA or, or epidemiology style large scale sequencing toxin uh, Thought Denise Kunert did a great job at that. And I suppose the, the unusual one was, um, so Pop Group always gets some money from the Fisher Memorial Trust. And as I'm sure everyone is aware, uh, there's a lot of reconsideration of whether we should have some of the old founders of UK population genetics and North American population genetics, whether we should be so quick to name prizes after them and things like that because of associations with eugenics. Do we acknowledge that? Do we um, cancel them and things like that? So last year we had a bit of a debate about the Fisher Memorial Trust money and, and what we should do um, to address that. And at the business meeting, we, I think the conclusion was we took the money, we used the money to fund students to attend, particularly students from a diverse background, but also we thought it would be good to invite Adam Rutherford to come and give a talk. And Adam Rutherford, as many genetic society members will know, I think he gave the Haldane lecture last year. He's written some fantastic books on the history of eugenics and racism so I thought it would be great to invite him to come and give the sort of pre-conference dinner talk. And uh, to my pleasant surprise, he agreed very readily and came up and gave, I thought he gave a really interesting, thought-provoking talk. So that was unusual, but I was really pleased to get that into pocket this year. Yes, they were all great choices and the topics complemented each other nicely. You mentioned the business meeting there, which is a slot during each year's conference that's used to plan for the next couple of years. I didn't make it this time, but I hear we might be going abroad in the not too distant future. Yeah, so we call it the business meeting. It's a bit tongue in cheek because there's nothing formal about pop groups. It's just whoever wants to turn up and talk about where pop groups going, um, both literally and metaphorically. 
Um, for this year, we we had a discussion about money and, and using money to support things. But also, we that's when we tend to point the finger at people and say, well, who's doing the next one? Um, Sheffield, we're keen to do it next year. Nicola Nado will organise next year, and that's pretty much set in stone. And then there was an offer from DL Abu Awad, I believe it is, from um, Paris, to host a meeting at Lille. Um, so I think it would be very exciting and you know, in post-Brexit UK, it would be great to retain connections and get back and forward to mainland Europe as often as we can. It, it's been a pop group has been outside of the UK before. There was one in Holland, I remember, and I think there was another one in France. But since ESEP started, the tendency to for it to almost shrink back into becoming a sort of British-based conference is probably accentuated a bit. But there's always people who come from France, Germany, um, Holland is often well represented, but pop group. So I think it would be great to take it to Lille. It's easy to get to, you know, it's probably easier to get to for half the delegates than St Andrews. Yeah, I imagine that's true for me. Yeah, and, and pleasingly there were a lot of people even talking about subsequent ones after that. So I think Pop Group's got a good momentum going. We'll keep going for a good few years yet, I'm sure. Wonderful. Well, on that note, thanks for talking to me, Mike. As Mike mentioned, the opening plenary talk was given by Susan Johnston. I caught up with Susan after the meeting. My name's Susan Johnston. I'm a research group leader, a research fellow based at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm really interested in understanding why genetic variation persists in natural populations. Perfect. Thank you. So we're talking today about POP Group. What's your previous experience with the meeting? I think POP Group is definitely my favourite meeting in the calendar. So I've been, I'm a regular attendee and I've been going since uh, about 2013. So I think I've been to about eight or nine POP Groups over that time. So I really, I really like it because it's a nice opportunity to build a community when you keep going to this meeting again and again. I feel like it's the right size and that there's not too many people, but also it's a really good opportunity to make new connections. And I think the science is always really high quality and um, really novel. Like people are always interested or really keen to present new results, results in progress and stuff like that. So I think it's always really at the cutting edge of uh, population genetics and evolutionary biology. Absolutely. And you formed part of that cutting edge this year, giving a plenary. I spoke to Mike Ritchie earlier and he set it up as this beautiful romantic homecoming for you, giving this talk in St Andrews because you were there as an undergrad, right? Yeah, that's right. So what was your talk about? Um, so my talk was about a kind of really broad theme in my research group, which is trying to understand why we see so much variation in recombination rates. So this is a subject I sort of fell into a bit by accident. I've always been interested in evolutionary trade-offs and things like sexual conflict. So how do these different um, phenomena maintain genetic variation within populations? So the reason I'm, I'm so interested in recombination is because it's a trait that's completely fraught with all sorts of trade-offs. So you have these evolutionary trade-offs where it creates new combinations of alleles that can help populations respond quickly to selection. So it's really important kind of evolutionary force, but it also has this uh, cost where you have things like 
Um, it can break up beneficial combinations of alleles. It can introduce new mutations into the genome and so on. So it's really on this trade-off to try and reach the optimal amount of recombination. But it also has this other facet in that the process of creating chromosomal crossovers um, punctuates a really critical point in your life history. So any problems that happen during this process can really impact your fertility. And problems with this recombination process are actually one of the leading causes of things like pregnancy loss and because it can lead to increased incidences of things like trisomies and um, other sort of chromosomal problems within, within zygotes. So I'm really interested in not just thinking about the evolutionary causes and consequences, but also the mechanistic causes and consequences of variation. So um, at the meeting, I was really focusing on how recombination differs so much between the sexes, because this is a completely universal phenomenon in all species that have recombination, but actually it's very poorly understood. Um, so despite the fact that there's a lot of variation between the sexes, no one really knows why. So my talk was kind of trying to dissect this problem using these long-term data sets from both domestic and wild long-term studies. So actually quantifying recombination um, within these populations and then trying to understand how it varies across the genome and how that differs between the sexes, but also how it varies uh, between individuals and species and so on. As a relative recombination novice, the link with fertility is that because recombination happens during meiosis, right, when gametes are being formed, so any mistakes there can impact the performance of those gametes and therefore the fertility of the parent organism, whatever that might be. Yeah, so it's actually um, the crossover process itself, so this formation of crossovers between homologous chromosomes, is really important to tether the chromosomes in the correct position in the cell. But also it creates a kind of tension on the chromosome. So this was actually addressed by one of the other um, plenary speakers, Kirsten Bombley's. And um, so that when the spindle attaches to the chromosomes, it can sense this tension between the two. And it's, it's really important to make sure that the spindle is kind of taking just one chromosome from the pair. Um, so this crossover process is, is just really critical to make sure that you get what's called proper disjunction. So that's the correct number of chromosomes into egg and sperm cells. Um, and it's just shown through a lot of work in humans and mice that when these crossovers fail to form, then you get a much higher incidence of this non-disjunction and then basically a higher incidence of things like trisomies and other issues where you have, you know, differences in chromosome count that can have really harmful impact on in any resulting zygotes that could be formed. One of the things I found really fascinating was what you said about the potential impact of when gametes are produced in the life cycle. So that differs between the sexes and could be impacting the evolution of recombination. Is that right? I think if we want to try to understand recombination, it has not just a direct impact on your fitness, but also this indirect impact on, you know, a population's ability to respond to selection, deal with the problems of genetic drift and so on. But if we really want to understand recombination, we ultimately have to understand the underlying mechanisms of it as a process. And this is where I think the sex differences become really important because we're having this fundamental genome shuffling process, but it's happening in two different ways. It's happening in a female, and it's happening in a male. And there's all sorts of both evolutionary and mechanistic reasons as to why we can see these differences. But the mechanistic ways have been really 
neglected, I think, by evolutionary biologists. We're very rarely thinking about the, the mechanistic differences that we can see. So, of course, um, recombination can happen at really different time points in males and females. In males, it's happening kind of continually after sexual maturity because sperm are just constantly being produced. Um, whereas in females, invertebrates, at least, it's happening at a really critical developmental time point. So, for example, in humans, if you have an ovary, then the crossovers are actually being formed when you're a 10-week-old fetus in the womb. So it's happening at a really, really, really early period of development. And what happens is that the crossovers are formed, but then they completely arrest. So they just hold these crossovers until you actually fertilize the egg, if that makes sense. So this is actually one of the mechanisms to explain why in humans, fertility problems can increase with maternal age, because you have these crossovers sort of holding the chromosomes together. If you have fewer crossovers, there's some evidence from the decode study in Iceland that having fewer crossovers results in uh, having fewer offspring, if that makes sense. Um, and it might be that this chromosomal crossover, having more of these can keep this complex like really stable over time. So this is why we're kind of interested in these, these differences and the timing of meiosis, because this can really maybe impact the differences that we see. So in females, it has to be something really solid, whereas in males, gametes are kind of a bit disposable. So it might mean that there's kind of different um, fitness impacts of the number of crossovers between males and females. But also, there, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I could go on about this until the cows come home, but I think also we just we know from some of the results that are presented as well that um, between males and females, there's actually quite different genes involved in determining how much crossover, how many crossovers are happening. And also the, the landscape of recombination can differ as well. So there's just all these many, many differences between sexes that I think are really important to consider. Well, I agree. You convinced me with your talk and it's great to have it refreshed again now. So thank you very much for talking to me. One of POP Group's aims is to promote the role of early career researchers, and one way that they do that is by awarding prizes for the best student talks. So I introduce to you this year's winner. Uh, so my name is uh, Diana Lobo, and so I just uh, recently finished uh, my PhD at the University of Porto in Portugal. And currently, uh, so I just started a, a postdoc position at Biopolis uh, CBU, which is a research center in biodiversity and genetic resources, also in Portugal. Um, and I think that I can say that I'm really interested in understanding this interaction between like humans and animals and, and how their evolutionary trajectory has been shaped by the interaction between one another uh, and always based on a, on a genomic approach, which is the thing that I, I like the most. Great. Thanks. So was this your first pop group or are you a regular? No, actually, it was the first time that I managed to go. Uh, unfortunately, and for different reasons, I couldn't go in the previous editions, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm really glad that this year I made to go. Yes, it's so good to see it properly back after COVID. And so could you tell us what your talk was about? Yeah, of course. Uh, so actually, I decided to uh, take to pop group my favorite chapter uh, of my PhD thesis, and so the idea for this work started a long time ago uh, with my supervisor, where uh, like we wonder about the role of this, uh, the hybridization and introversion 
of genetic variants uh, from domestic dogs into this potential wolf adaptation to our anthropogenic world. Because, of course, that dogs and um, domestic animals in general, they have several traits that allow them to survive better among humans. And so for that, we studied the Iberian wolf, which is a subspecies of, of the gray wolf. Um, and Iberian wolves, they have coexisted with uh, humans for millennia in Iberian Peninsula. Uh, so in Iberian Peninsula, uh, is, so it's the same population in both Portugal uh, and Spain. And the Iberian wolf, in fact, it represents a, a, like a remarkable case uh, of resilience and adaptation to highly humanized uh, landscapes, despite this intensive persecution uh, that the species has suffered for, like, for a long time. And so in order to understand if the Iberian wolf had these signatures of dog introgression, we applied a population genomics approach um, to characterize the ancestry uh, across the genome. And in fact, we found a dog genomic block in chromosome 2 of, of Iberian wolves that we found to uh, derived from an introgression event uh, at least 3,000 years ago. Uh, and when we look uh, like into more detail to this uh, introgress block, we found that uh, it's in fact associated uh, with a specific gene that has been uh, like associated with several neurocognitive disorders in several uh, vertebrate species. Uh, and we also found that this gene um, displays some signatures of selection in both domestic dogs and also uh, in the Iberian wolf uh, following the, um, the introgression. And so what we think at the moment is that these um, dog variants may be uh, like contributing to increase the tolerance uh, of Iberian wolves towards um, the human presence in Iberian Peninsula. And it has like allowed them to survive and adapt to these type of landscapes. Uh, but so we, and this was the work basically that I, that I present on pop group, uh, but we are still like investigating, uh, this gene further and trying to understand exactly what, uh, what it does. Yeah. It's very cool. I'm looking forward to more information on this in the future. I really enjoyed your talk and it seems that a lot of other people did too, because you won the student talk prize. So how did that feel? Ah, uh, Yes. I hope so. I mean, yeah, I, I think people like it. Yes, yes. But uh, I mean, it was completely, uh, uh, honestly, it was completely unexpected because, so as I said, it was the first time that I went to the conference and so no one knew me or knew my work. So I was not expecting, like having a lot of people voting for me. Uh, but I mean, it was an amazing feeling, of course, to to understand that uh, among such incredible uh, research that uh, that the other students uh, presented, people also recognize I mean, some value on my research and, and like the, the talk. I would just like to say that this is a, it's a great opportunity uh, that Pop Group offers to uh, all the students. Even if you are like a non-native English speaker as myself, it is definitely worth the, the effort. And so I really think that people should apply. And it was very cool because although Pop Group, it has, a, I mean, a lot of people know Pop Group, it's still, it's funny because it still has this kind of familiar atmosphere where you can feel that you can talk to every, everybody. And I think it is, I mean, this is great, mostly for like younger researchers as myself. It's, I mean, it's really cool that you can feel that you can approach everyone and talk about your work to everyone. That it's, that was really great. And of course that I feel very honored and I would like to thank the Pop Group for for giving me uh, the, uh, the award. Thank you, Diana, and congratulations. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thank you. 
So that's it for today. I'll be back next month with another pop group episode talking to another couple of the plenary speakers before resuming the regular format in March. In the meantime, if you're desperate for new heredity research, you can find that at the website, which is nature.com forward slash hdy, where you can also find out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society, a learned society dedicated to research and promotion of genetics. I've been Mike Pointer. Thanks for listening.